and welcome to The Prestige, all about films, filmmaking and film theory. Each week we pick a movie, we review it, we talk about it and discuss some of the ideas and themes that it throws up. And as always, we'll end the recommendations, a further reading inspired by this week's film. But before we kick off, a quick catch up on what else we've been watching. Rob? Essentially nothing. Right. Basically. Um, my baby is now a month old, so we haven't really been watching anything. Um, because it's mostly feeding, burping, changing, feeding, burping, changing, sleeping. Um, so films have been pretty much out of the question. What we have done, we're watching a lot of TV. Oh, the two main shows I've been catching up on this week are in a similar vein to each other, but also very different shows. So the first is Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown, which is essentially a travel show. But I believe he's a chef, so it's predominantly focused on the food of when he travels. But the interesting thing is he travels to less salubrious places than you'd think. So he does Libya, he does the Congo, he does Peru. He does all the sort of places that are off the map that normally you wouldn't see on a travel show. It is not for faint-hearted. He will eat any part of any animal, and you very often see animals being slaughtered for these meals. But it's inspiring, and he's very good, and it's very interesting to see these kind of these parts of the world that normally aren't covered. His one on Libya, obviously post-revolution, is very, very interesting, very, very good. Um, it's tricky to find it in the UK, but it is out there. Secondly, in a similar vein to the first film, but a different show very much, is Travel Man from Richard Ayoade, uh, from the IT crowd. Mm-hmm. I believe he did a show called Gadget Man prior to this, and this is kind of the travel version of that. It's very much a comedy, very much a glib travel show. He does 24 hours in a generally a European city, but has done Marrakesh, and I believe he does New York in later later series. Um, but it's kind of a whistle-stop tour of a European city, a weekend break. But in his very much his glib, offhand, uptight style. It's very funny. Um, and each week he has a different sort of comedian guest. So Kathy Burke, Chris O'Dowd, um, Sue Perkins, that kind of thing. Companies him on him. And yeah, it's. Uh, I'm not quite sure why they're watching some travel shows. I imagine it's because we can't actually go anywhere right now. Um, but uh, yeah, that's what we're watching. What are you, Sam? And not a lot. A different reason I've been ill, but I have been similarly unable to watch films this week. I have one thing I have watched is something I've watched on Rob's recommendation, which you, well you'll know from listening to this how many recommendations Rob gets through. So I don't watch everything that Rob recommends, but, but you um, should Sam. I'm always right. <laughs> yes, one I have looked up this week is a great film from last year. It's Sicario. Mm. Which in the vein of another female-led type film, Zero Dark Thirty, recent film we talked about on this podcast. Sicario is very sparse and spare, and the palette is very, it's very toned down. It's very gritty and real at times, and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the suspense. There was a certain amount of violence. But the violence didn't seem gratuitous, it seemed necessary. And something I mentioned recently is I've been watching lots of Narcos, which is a great TV show, but there was a lot of violence. Um, and it was interesting to see something set in the same part of the world, which mm-hmm. wasn't quite so uh, heavy on the violence. It was great. <laughs> Thoroughly recommend. Brilliant. I must say, I might recall recommending Sicario, because I haven't actually watched it myself. Oh, right. So it may have been a, that's worth seeing, but I haven't actually seen it myself to give you an official recommendation. Well, it, it's great. Oh, I shall check it out then, sir. 
good. So this week's film is the sequel to The Matrix from last week. So it is The Matrix Reloaded. Here we go. Hi, you fellas. It's him. Do we proceed? Yes. He is still only human. All of our lives, we have fought this war. Tonight, I believe we can end it. That's a nice trick. Huh. Upgrades. Mr. Anderson. Surprised to see me? So now he's found a way to copy himself. Now there's more than one of them. A lot more. Set, I imagine, several months after the first Matrix. The Matrix Reloaded picks up with Neo now essentially being a fully-fledged superhero and cult icon, I suppose, to the freed humans of Zion. We are introduced to the wider human resistance, so we meet other captains, other ships. We go to Zion and we sort of experience the culture and life down there and some of the politics of the human revolution. Also in the Matrix, we are introduced to the expanded Matrix culture, I suppose, so we meet other machines within the Matrix. We discover more of the backstory of the one and what the one does and we also meet the now resurrected and now virus like I suppose Agent Smith who has survived somehow his interaction with Neo in the first film and it has freed him from the control and he appears to be now a free agent of opposed chaos with the Matrix that's probably where I shall leave our quick recap because we'll move into spoiler territory pretty fast because um, the nature of this film and nature of this film will warrant that I suppose um, but Sam, after our love of the film last week, what were your thoughts on The Matrix Lose? Two things, I suppose. One is that the I really enjoyed the first part of the film, and I really didn't enjoy the second part of the film. And this comes down to, I think this comes down to um, the way that the first half of the film is very interesting. And it's very interesting for the way that it plays with certain ideas like... You've mentioned the word virus already, the way that Agent Smiths replicate and the way that the machines don't behave like machines, they behave like animal entities or virus-like entities. And that was very interesting. I was intrigued by the scenes in Zion at the start, which I'm sure we'll go on to talk about. And then it left me a bit cold in the second half. We have the scene with um, near being rushed by many incarnations of Agent Smith, which, beyond the first bit, where I thought, well, unlike a stupid action film where they the bad guys rush him separately and he can defeat them one by one, they actually pile on him, which is how you would attack someone if you outnumbered them. After that, I just got bored with the whole sequence, maybe because of the way it looks, maybe because of the fact that it just went on for too long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and there were things I mean I suppose that's that's the thing with the um, sequence on the freeway as well that initially I thought oh, it's quite interesting and then I thought well this doesn't look great and also it's been going on far too long so that I, I felt this was a film of two halves I really enjoyed I really enjoyed some of the ideas at the start and the way that the first half of the film was presented and I just felt it ran out of steam and the second half became a bit boring first. I I can see that. I was a big fan of the first film, 
and I must say that the second film was somewhat of a disappointment to me. When I first watched it back in 2003, it was a disappointment to me. Watching it again now, I find more things to like in it, but I do think it's a step down overall from the first film. And I think, just listening to you talk then, I think one of the things that, if you want to sum up my problems with it and whether I think the film lost its way, is it's everything from the first film but more. So the fight scenes are more elaborate and go on longer, but just get a bit duller. We see more of Zion. We see more of the human resistance. We see more of the Matrix. We meet more machines. We have more visual effects and more powers from Neo. And all this just pile on of more and more and more and more and more ends up making this film seem bloated. Mm-hmm. And all these characters, so you know, we meet the other captains, we meet Morpheus's ex, who's now dating the head of resistance, we meet the actual head of the resistance, we meet all these sort of worshippers of Neon in Zaya, we meet this adoring puppy dog boy in Zaya, we meet Link's family, we meet the um, architect again who's now changed, we now we meet her bodyguard, we meet the key master, we meet the Merovingian, we meet Persephone, we meet the werewolves, we meet the ghosts, we meet the architect and all these kind of things and it just like they just threw everything at the screen yeah. and hoped some of it stuck. And whilst I think individually all these things are interesting, like all all the things they're throwing up are interesting things. It's just too much for a film to take. It's just it's just overload of of data. Yeah. An overload of, of, of narrative. And I think that a a stronger producer should have reined it in a little bit and cut out some of the wheat from the chaff, some of the fat from the film. Yes. And I think we'd have a tighter and better film for it. Yeah. On top of that, I think I have technical issues with the film. I think that the CGI in the first film was, was almost perfect and it had a the whole world, Matrix and Real World had a gritty lived in feel to it. It had a sort of steampunky, grimy, cyberpunk feel to all of the stuff. Come the second film, the CGI somehow is worse. The especially the shots of Morpheus talking to the cathedral in Zion, the fights you mentioned it there with all the Agent Smiths. It just felt plasticky and weird, and it just didn't have the same kind of texture of the first film. All the fights were more wire foo, more CGI, more flying. And it just it just felt like a plastic film rather than the reality of that first film. And I imagine that's a product of budgets and products of, you know, riding the success of the first one. Suddenly they're given this budget and this freedom to do whatever they wanted, and the technology can't keep up with their their desires. Yeah, but there there are several things there, and one is this idea of narrative bloat, which I think is really interesting because, well, like you said, there's just too much going on. If you look at a look at the the proceed that Rob gave us at the start, that if you look at any summary of this film, it it reads like three films stuck together. Mm. There are different things going on. There's the the one strand which has sort of near against the architects and there's another strand which involves the key maker and there's another strand which involves machines borrowing to Zion and any of those could have been a whole film but they weren't they were jammed together and and presented in one package and maybe like you say maybe that's in microcosm why certain sequels don't work 
and maybe it's it's sort of the the Lucas effect mm. being given to not being produced enough when Lucas came around to putting out the prequels from, of the Star Wars films. I think it, it, it's a common sequel itis you see, which is the somehow to expand and make it bigger and the threats are bigger and all that sort of thing. And in the first film, you've got a very tight story with a very tight crew and it's they're in threat, I grant you. You know, Cypher is, you know, turn them in and they have to rescue Morpheus and then they have to fight an agent. But it's, it's very personal. Come the second film, it's the fate of humanity on the line. Mm. And by having to up that and top the, you know, the, the we talked about last week about the the technical aspects of the first film with the bullet time and the and stuff it has up, it's up that people expect more than that. rather than saying well that was great let's have more let's have the same that again let's have more of that same thing is well, we want more more a lot more of that uh, more than one film candle so I think that's a common problem with like sequels and it's certainly evident here moving beyond our probably our feelings on the film. The film certainly is trying to do some work around the idea of free will versus destiny. Yes. Or choice. Now, we had it a bit last week with the red red, blue, red pill, red blue pill, and all that kind of thing. But that's certainly expanded upon and compounded in this film. And what is choice? And do we have choice? This is where we'll open up to spoilers, certain territory, certainly, I think. So, be warned. This is certainly, um, when I said that one of the strands of the film that could have been expanded upon was Neo versus the Architect, the idea of choice and free will is very much central to that. So there's a whole film in here about the idea of choice. And there was a a soundbite here from the Wachowskis, who at this stage should no longer be called the Wachowski Brothers, certainly by 2003 they started transitioning. So the Wachowskis, um, and it was around not just this sequel, but also turning the films into an MMORPG and the video game quality of their work. Mm. Um, But they said, our films were never intended for a passive audience. There are enough of these kinds of films being made we wanted our audience to have to work, to have to think, to have to actually participate in order in, to enjoy our movies. So this idea of free will and and choice, not just not just being a, a sort of a, a narrative trope in the film, destiny, not just being something that the film is concerned with, but something that the Wachowskis were actually looking to challenge in the way that they they produced their art. Mm. And that's what I say about this this film being really interesting. And that was why I was quite disappointed with the second half of it. Because I think this, there was a really interesting film in this. And that just gets taken over by, well, what you said, by, by narrative bloke. By, by too many decisions not being made directorially. Mm. I think it's the first film felt like a very intelligent action film. Mm. Whereas this feels like an action film and a thoughtful think piece film somehow rammed together. Yeah. And most notably in the I think oft lamented scene with the architect in which it explained to Neo that he is the one, but he's also twenty third one. Um and he serves a, a idea within the Matrix, the idea that people are choosing to be there, um and those that choose not to be there cannot be there. And that's how they create the matrix and get, make the human mind accept the matrix. It's by offering them this subconscious choice. 
But I think it's interesting that they say about this subconscious choice, but at the same time it is revealed that the Oracle is a machine as well, and is, I suppose, on the same side as the machines. Mm. That she isn't... She's as as much part of the process of the one as any any agent or any um, architect. And if you think that she's the one who's been giving advice to everybody on how to do things to the entire human existence, you've got to question how much choice they've had in leading to this point. And it does feel that the only real choice that anyone's had at any point in the film, in both films, is the choice that that Neo makes to pick the door in the room. Mm. But at the same time, it's very clear that the, the architect knows he's going to pick that door. Yeah, so it's it does some interesting things. It doesn't offer any answers, and I'm okay with that. I think, but it, it does ask this question about choice, and and if we are looking at a a reflection of our society, of you know, we everyone says we live in a free society, but at the same time, we kind of don't. We live we live in a, a world where if I want to live in this world, I have to get a job working for someone else. I have to do this. I have to do that. You have to abide by obviously laws, but also societal expectations and societal standards. Um, to function in this world and we make the choice we think to do these things but at the same time it's it's some of those choices that are built into us from day one of our lives yeah also something that's interesting about about choice and destiny was the fact that by the end Morpheus appears to be the only character that actually believes in choice that believes in free will that believes in making your own destiny and so it's Morpheus against everyone else in the film. It begins to feel like Morpheus is a bit deluded. And I thought that was really interesting that I mean, in the first film and at times in this film you have Morpheus presented as well not as a saviour character because I suppose that's near himself but certainly as a character who knows how to lead and knows what's best for the human race and is someone that people look up to and is someone that the people follow unquestioningly. Mm. You have Cypher present, it's no, not Cypher, Link present like that at the beginning of the second film. But here you have Morpheus revealed as a bit deluded because everyone else knows in this film there is no such thing as choice. There's no such thing as choosing your own destiny. Yeah. I think. Mean- it's interesting, the idea here of, of man versus machine. Because I think it's worth noting that and thinking about the fact that the, the bad guys in this aren't aliens. They aren't you know mutants or anything like that. They are machines which are ostensibly programmed to do what they're told. They follow a program. They follow a pattern. Computers do what they tell you, you tell them to do. Some of them are very complex and they'll do things that you aren't expecting, but you have told them to do it even if you don't told them to do it. Where in this, you've got these like these pre-programmed plans that they are expected to follow through. The idea of the one being birthed, coming to meet the Matrix, go returning to the source, resetting the Matrix, all that kind of thing. That's a pre. The architect expects that, and the Oracle says he can't see beyond the truth he doesn't understand, mm. because to him, to deviate from the programming is unheard of, unexpected. Mm. That, that that's what he can't deal with. This does open up an interesting question, which is a, probably a, a more sort of a filmic narrative, maybe even a fan theory rather than anything else. But the role of Agent Smith in this. Now, I, I have read theories, and I'm, I'm, I think I kind of described them a little bit, that the rise of Agent Smith is as planned as the rise of the One. 
Mm. And so when they talk about having to reset the Matrix, it's to deal with the rise of Agent Smith. That, that, that's that's why the one exists to reset the Matrix because he, he talked about going to reboot the Matrix and reset Zion. And you have to ask the question of why they need to do that. You know, it wouldn't be too hard for the machines to kind of just pick at the Zion, Zionists, at the um, at the uh, humans enough to kind of keep the population down, so it can kind of survive as a little choice bubble, shall we say? But the idea that the rise of Smith, the rise of the One, leads to the rise of Smith, and then the One is forced to reboot the whole Matrix to deal with the anomaly, as it's discussed, which is Smith rather than Neo. Mm. And obviously it's interesting in this film, the first time mate, the Neo, the one, chooses to look after the Matrix rather than trying to save humanity, if you see what I'm saying. I've been wondering about this because I have read similar theories and I've been keeping quiet about them for the, certainly for the first podcast in this series. I suppose we're moving towards the end now, so it's time to open up to that but i've I've read things that suggest that maybe even that Neo isn't the one that actually the Oracle was telling the truth in the first film, mm-hmm. and that actually what is being talked about the coming the second coming is not necessarily a, a savior for mankind it's it's a different sort of reboot, mm-hmm. and it's something that's enacted by someone who is the looked-for second coming, who is the uh, the Agent Smith character. I think we'll touch more on this next week once we get to the conclusion of the story. Mm. But I do think, I think there's some weight, and as you, you mentioned that quote earlier from the Wachowski, which is brilliant, they they want you to watch their films and think deeper about it. Mm. You know, think more. You know, things aren't called things in these films by accident, you know. The Merovingian isn't called the Merovingian because they like the name. It has a history to that name, and the reason why... Persephone, Morpheus, these names are evocative of something else and they're using those. So I can totally believe the idea that there's there's a, a secondary narrative that going on behind the scenes here that we don't know about. Mm. Now, there is a theory which I'm not sure I, I, I'm entirely on board with, but there is an idea that the Merovingian was a previous one. Right. Um, and that they, they, you know, Persephone says he was like you when he was younger to him. And I wonder whether that's these little breadcrumbs, I suppose, they're leaving through the story to uh, lead us to something else, something bigger. Mm. But I think there's there's weight to the idea that Smith is planned and Smith is as part of this, and Neo exists to deal with Smith. Yeah. And I so said next week we'll touch on that. But I think that's where the the core idea of what they're trying to say here. Sometimes I think is about love rather than anything else. Because the one difference of this this one this Neo is that he experiences his love for humanity as like it says in a specific way. Mm. He loves one person. Yeah. Previous ones loved humanity as a whole. And so the the idea that the single catalyst here, the single chain, the variable that has changed, is this love of, of Trinity. Mm. So that he couldn't... He would burn humanity to save her, if you see what I'm saying. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I must say, I, I enjoyed it more the second time around than I did the first time. I think there's some interesting thoughts in there even if the, the, the narrative itself can be a bit overblown. Yeah. Okay, well, we will get on with more of that and certainly more of those wilder theories next week with the third film in the trilogy. Rob, do you have any recommendations this week? I do, I do. And I'm not sure if 
you're going to agree with at least one of them. Um, so my first recommendation is taking Monica Bellucci, who plays Persephone in Magic Loaded, the wife of Merovingian. She is a fabulous actress who's been in lots of great French films, Italian films. Not too many Western films, but she's certainly one you'll have seen in various things. And I'm going to recommend her 2002 film Irreversible, also starring Vincent Cassell. It essentially is the story of a lady who is brutally raped and her coming to terms with that. It is told in reverse, so we start in the story and work way back through the story. Oh, not bad again. It is not a film for the faint-hearted in any shape or form. It is not a fun film. It is not an easy film to watch. It is narratively hard. It is visually very intense, but she is outstanding in it, and it won loads of awards for a very good reason. But it is not... It is not a fun, enjoyable film in that respect. It is it is brutal. My second recommendation is the one where I think I might lose Sam, possibly. I might lose a lot of you, listen. Um, and that is the 2015 film, Jupiter Ascending. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm sure I've made this past, and I'll continue recommending it. The Wachowskis, uh, now Lana and Lily, um, rather than Larry and Andy. Um, so they're now fully transitioned as a gentleman. Um, and Jupiter Ascending is... In many ways, as bloated as Metroid Loaded, it is the tale of Jupiter Jones who discovers that she is the reincarnation of a long-dead space queen. She meets a half-werewolf, half-human, and discovers this whole hierarchy of aliens who harvest humans around the world, around the universe. It is very confusing. It is very overblown. It is operatic in the truest sense of the word, and I bloody love it. It is space opera, it is grandiose, it is reaching for everything. I think it is a great big fun film, and I think that people can give it more of a chance. But I say this every time I mention it, and I'm always told I'm wrong. Yeah. Sam! Right, I had well, I had three recommendations, and you just pushed me to pick one of them, which is more ridiculous. So, um... <laughs> To, to spite you for Jupiter Ascending. Um, my sensible recommendation this week is a later film by the Wachowskis uh, between uh, the Matrix films and Jupiter Ascending. Uh, it's 2006 film V for Vendetta based on an Alan Moore graphic novel. I love Alan Moore's work. Um, and it's been brought to the screen with varying degrees of success. But... I enjoyed V Vendetta, and I would recommend that. So that's my serious recommendation this week. My non-serious recommendation in response to Jupiter's Handling is another um, Keanu Reeves film. And I only mention this because, well, in response to Jupiter's Handling, and also because I do mention it a lot. It seems to be a pop culture touchstone for me. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe I need to have a think about that. It's 1995 film Johnny Mnemonic, which Rob and I saw at the cinema. It, it's an utterly ridiculous film, as so many Keanu Reeves films are, but it, it's enjoyable fun. It very much is that. It is that. So, guys, we'll be back next week with The Matrix Revolutions, the third and final part of Major Trilogy. Till then, you can find both of us online at Prestige Podcast. You can find me at life underscore academic. And you can find just me at Rob Kaiju.
The Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr! Arg.